following audio is from St Nick's Durham. As a church, we exist to love God, love people and love Durham. We hope that this sermon will serve you well as a supplement to your regular Bible reading, prayer and participation in your local church. For more information about St Nick's Durham, directions or resources, please visit stnicks.org.uk. Reading from the first letter of Paul to the Thessalonians, and it's chapter 4, and we'll be reading from verse 13 and going on to chapter 5, verse 11. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. Brothers and sisters, We do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you, But we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, brothers and sisters, about the times and dates, we do not need need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labour pains on a pregnant woman, and they'll not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night and to the darkness. So then, let's not be like the others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let's be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us, so that whether we awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you are doing. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And now here comes Maeve and we'll just pray for her before she speaks to us. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for this precious word of God to us today and we pray, Lord, that you will fill Maeve with your spirit as she speaks. Give her liberty, give her power, give her strength and give her grace as she preaches to us. And we pray, Lord, that you will give us also the grace to hear, listening ears and listening hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Andrew. Well, good evening. My name is Maeve. For those of you who don't know, I'm one of the curates um, here at St Nick's, and it is really nice to be back preaching to you in 3D, not on a screen for a change. It's fantastic. Um, I've been spending much of lockdown away, for those of you who don't know. But also, I've just had the joy of being on holiday for two weeks in Cornwall, which is absolutely beautiful. So beautiful that, in fact, I'm going to show you some of my holiday pictures on the grounds you are a captive audience, and I will not get a chance to do this very often, so you are like my living Instagram feed. So let's have a look. How good is that? This is Rincey. We were right down in the south coast, down past Penzance, almost as far as Land's End, and the weather was like this. Well, like some days it was anyway. But. And um, we also went on, oh, this, this is Mausel, this is a restaurant in Mausel, looking out towards St. Clement's Isle. On that isle, we suddenly realised there was a shape of a Celtic cross brought out of, which obviously was, was wrought in iron, that could be lit up. There, was a, there were regular commemorations of a lifeboat that had gone down with lots of souls. And it was commemorated, apparently, by a Celtic cross being up in lights. Mausel was gorgeous, as Mausel Harbour. And then and it's, a, it's a great wee town as well. Yeah, it's very, very pretty. And then there's this. This is the church at St. Justin Roseland. Has anyone ever been there? No, this is, this is where I went to church. I mean, someone, we'd looked up and someone said it's beautiful. And, and John Bitcherman said some nice things about the churchyard. So, hey, I'm quite shallow. I'll go and have a look. And so we went there. That's a close-up of the church. And it's an extraordinary place. I mean, if, if you look at the grounds, I mean, it's like almost like subtropical Cornwall. And as you go on, I mean, they, they have this huge churchyard. And you'll see some steps going up shortly. But there are, the place is full of monuments and gravestones, all with some quite elaborate, some quite, quite concise, something new and old. And also, they, clearly, at some point, a Victorian vicar had lined an entire path with loads of slabs of granite and stone, with sometimes verses of scripture, sometimes generally improving thoughts on them, but a kind of whole range of amazing things. I mean, completely extraordinary. And then it had the most stunning lich gate, which looks like this. Now, obviously, you're an erudite audience. This is Durham. You will all know what a lich gate is. But just bear with me for the one person who maybe doesn't. Um, a lich gate is an ornamental gate, which um, essentially is a separation between um, into the churchyard, between the secular and sacred bits of the parish. And the word lich comes from an old English word meaning corpse. Because medieval lich gates, lich gates were the place that when you brought a body to be buried in the churchyard, the party bringing them would linger underneath the lich gate and take shelter underneath. And then the priest would come and meet them at the lich gate. And then they process into the consecrated churchyard and carry out the funeral services. And this particular lich gate, I mean, there is no bit of this place that's unplaqued, trust me. The lich gate has a plaque as well, which we can have a look. Okay, let's see if we can get a close-up on that. I get right at the picture, I'm not a great photographer. Let me read it to you. It says this. Here rest the silent dead, 
And here too, I, when yonder dial shall strike the hour, must lie. Look around in orderly array. See where the buried host await the judgment day. Stranger, in peace pursue thine onward road, but never forget thy last and long abode. Then we went for a cup of tea. <laughs> but just underneath it, I then noticed as we were about to walk off, it says this, those who sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. And this is, of course, from today's reading that Angie's just brought to us. Verse 14 in the modern language says, For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Now, this is the point at which I began to wonder if the Lord was speaking to me, saying, I told you to write your sermon before you went on holiday, rather than waiting till you come back. But, um, which is a little heavy-handed, but yes, there it was. But actually, that plaque takes us right to the heart of tonight's subject which is death, or more specifically, what happens when we die. Now, this is something we all reflect on from time to time, but perhaps with a little added concentration or poignancy when we're in the middle of a global pandemic. But it was also the question very much on the mind of the Christians in Thessalonica to whom Paul had written this letter back in about 50 AD. Now, if you've been here in recent weeks, you'll know this was a fairly new community of believers. They had heard and accepted the good news of Jesus Christ. But Paul, having set them up, was burned, was I hadn't been able to get back to visit them in person. But Timothy has reported back to the Apostle Paul that the community has stood firm in faith and love and hope, but they have been suffering. But they've got the basics. They know that Jesus died for them and was raised from the dead and that one day he'll return in glory and all will be well. But in the meantime, things are pretty tough. And now it seems that they've started worrying that anyone of their number who dies before Jesus comes back is going to miss out on the action. And we don't know what prompted that concern. I mean, maybe someone from the community had died, maybe even been martyred. I mean, they were having a tough time. Or maybe they were just planning ahead. But whatever triggered it, the Thessalonican Christians were worried that fellow believers who died might be excluded from the joys and triumphs of the day of the Lord. And that's the focus of tonight's passage. So Paul kicks off and he's keen to make clear to them that their anxiety is seriously misplaced. Seriously, guys, he's saying, don't worry, I can assure you when Jesus comes again, the believers who've died will be raised from the dead to join the living. They will definitely be at the party. In fact, they may already be there by the time you guys show up, so don't worry. And Paul says he wants them to understand this because, as he says in verse 13, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. And just to be clear, Paul is not saying to the Thessalonians Christians that they should not be sad when someone they love dies. And that would be as unhelpful as if you lost someone you love and a fellow Christian wanting to cheer you up says, don't worry, they're with Jesus. Now, that is probably true, but it's just not what you need to hear at that moment. At least not the only thing you want to hear at that moment. And what Paul is saying to the Thessalonian Christians is if they understand the truth, they will not grieve in the same way as those people who have no hope. Of course they will grieve. They will mourn the loss of those they love, people they will miss every day. I mean, even Jesus cried when his friend Lazarus died, and presumably he knew he was about to raise him from the dead. But the the grief was real. His tears were real. So here, our our Thessalonican Christians should be grieving, but not in the same way. The difference is they know this isn't the end. It's really different for the pagans around them, because when they grieve, it's unremitting because death has the last word. 
But the grief of the Christians is intertwined with hope. It's underpinned by hope, by a deep Christian hope. But that hope rests on the basic tenets of our faith. We are saved because Jesus died for us, was raised from the dead, ascended to the Father, and will come again at the end of time, when his kingdom will come. And so then in verses 15 to 17, Paul, being Paul, is painting a vivid picture of what's this going to look like then when the Lord comes again. So here he goes. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with a voice of the archangel, the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we are still alive and our left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Okay, then we need to pause here for a sidebar. As some of you who are regulars will know, I came to faith in middle age. I'd been to a Catholic school as a child, but honestly not much of it stuck very well. I think I did kind of grasp the idea somewhere down the line that if I was a good girl, I would go to heaven when I died. And my mother died when I was a child, and so I also absorbed the notion that she'd gone to heaven, and then if I was a good girl and went to heaven, I would then get to see her again. But that was about the extent of it. So when in middle age I decided to explore Christianity, I felt drawn somehow to God. I didn't have much grasp of theology, and most of what it was was kind of 80-year-old, 19-dot Christianity. So before I actually went into a church, I did lots of reading, I googled stuff, I read stuff, I went online, I I listened, I watched everything, and I remember stumbling across a Christian film in which some of the characters suddenly disappeared for no reason that was explicable to me, leaving everybody else initially confused and then in a whole lot of trouble as basically the whole world started to go into meltdown. And I had no idea what was happening. All I could figure out was eventually was that the people who disappeared were all Christians, like really, really good, super good Christians. And it was years later I realised that what I was seeing was a representation of the rapture, something called the rapture. Have any of you read the Left Behind books? Want to come? Yeah. (laughs) Excellent, Brandon. Um, This is a series, I think, of 15 books we're up to now, plus assorted films. Um, based on the idea of the rapture, where it essentially is an idea that at the end of time, all true believers will be secretly snatched up away from their lives and taken straight to heaven along with the righteous dead, or more specifically, snatched up to meet with Jesus in the air. Meanwhile, all those unfortunate enough to be left behind will face Armageddon. Now, just to be clear, this is not an idea found anywhere in historic Christianity or the teachings of the church. This is a relatively modern notion which has emerged in recent years amongst some evangelical groups, mostly in North America. But what's interesting is it is on these verses that the idea of the rapture rests. Now, of course, this is not what Paul is saying. I mean, it is orthodox Christian belief that at the end of time, Jesus Christ will return in glory. And the righteous dead will be raised bodily. It's all in the creed, which we're going to say in a little while. So Paul here is talking about these events, but using poetic language and imagery that would have been recognisable to his audience of the day. There are echoes here of the Psalms, of images of the great king coming down from heaven, of the trumpet sounding as Moses came down the the mountain with the, the tablets of the law. There are echoes of Daniel 7, in which the one like a son of man is coming with the clouds of heaven and raised up to sit with God in glory, and much more besides. If you are interested in this, I can point you towards some very good writing by Tom Wright, the retired Bishop and New Testament scholar, who who, um, takes us apart very interestingly. But Tom Wright explains that what Paul is doing is using biblical allusion to describe the great transformation of the present world. And I realised that's the bit that was missing, at least from my understanding or my memory of my early religious education. 
because the Bible doesn't talk about heaven as the place we go to when we die. Heaven, in the Bible, God created heaven and earth. Heaven is the place where God lives, surrounded by hosts of angels. Earth is where we live. And at the end of time, both heaven and earth will be recreated and renewed. That's the new heaven and the new earth of Revelation. And that's what we mean when we speak of God's kingdom coming on earth. So chapter 14 ends with Paul reminding the Thessalonians that we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And yet these are words of encouragement to Christians of every time and every place. Jesus, who died for us and rose again, will return and we will be with him and, bad news, each other forever. So in chapter 5, Paul switches his focus from the dead to the living and then how believers should live in the light of the second coming of the Lord. And he uses a whole new bunch of metaphors around light and darkness, sobriety and drunkenness, and the imagery of armour, including the wonderful helmet, which is the hope of salvation. I think there is something in Isaiah, I think, about the helmet of salvation. But here it's the helmet of the hope of salvation. But that hope isn't some vague form of wishing or crossing your fingers or hoping for the best. Christian hope is a very solid thing indeed. It's founded on the most solid thing that ever happened, that Jesus died for us. In fact, today's reading finishes by summarising it really well. Jesus died for us so that, whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him, therefore encourage one another and build each other up. Okay, deep breath. So basically, that's our understanding of Christians as to what happens when we die. And the Christian view of death is to take it very seriously, but not to make the mistake of believing that it is the be-all and end-all of anything. Because Christians don't have a kind of dualistic worldview of existence where physical things are bad and spiritual things are good. I mean, my childhood understanding was fundamentally wrong. Earth is not a terrible place where good girls and boys get to escape as a reward for good behaviour. Christianity, far from that, is incredibly fundamentally embodied and incarnational. Its worldview looks forward to the day when we will all be raised and the earth will be renewed and redeemed, with all creation finally being as it was meant to be. So if we as Christians are called to live in the light of Christ's return, what difference does it all make when we get up tomorrow morning to go to work or school or holidays or wherever you're going? Well, a few thoughts. First, I think we need to treat the earth with a bit more respect. The theologian Paula Gooder points out that the world we live in is not something temporary that we'll cast off in hope for a future, hope for a future spiritual existence, but is the place where we learn to live as we will live for eternity. The place where we learn to live as we will live for eternity. I think that's a wonderful way of trying to say live out kingdom values. Or how that she puts it, live in a way that as much as possible brings life rather than death. And it's certainly a reason that Christians should be leading the campaign that we all tread more lightly on this earth God created for us and which we've done so much damage to. And it's a reason for each of us to regularly review our environmental footprint, to think about how we travel and shop and live. But also, if we believe in incarnation, then our bodies are of God. And so, so many of us struggle to love our bodies for all kinds of reasons. But a belief in bodily resurrection does make us think afresh about this. I mean, Paula Gooder points out that our post-resurrection bodies may be very different from the ones we have now. Hooray! 
but they will still be bodies. So let's be more attentive in caring for our own and other people's, recognising the beauty in others, and also seeing the pain that other people carry, and reaching out in love, embracing all kinds of difference. Secondly, I think as Christians, we need to be more willing to talk about death, because our society really doesn't do this very well. I mean, time was people grew up to see death as part of life. Today, it's so often hidden away and rarely discussed. It's seen as the ultimate medical failure. And as a result, people don't discuss it, and that just increases the fear. Now, there's been some wonderful moves on this in recent years, from the hospice movement, some brilliant palliative care doctors, some fantastic books and work being done about trying to talk more about this. But I know of people who knew they were dying, but couldn't talk about their wills or how they wanted to die or where they wanted to die or what happened or even their funeral because their families didn't want to discuss it. They want, no, no, let's stay positive. Don't talk about that. You're going to be fine. And the fact is Christians should not be afraid to talk about death. We don't want it. We don't seek it, but we know it isn't the end. And we used to know this much better as a society. The poet John Donne, he of No Man as an Island fame, um, wrote a sonnet called uh, Death Be Not Proud, which begins, Death be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. For those whom thou thinkst thou dost overthrow, die not, poor death, nor yet canst thou kill me. In Christian language, death has been defeated. Jesus died but was raised from the dead. And because of that, I will die. But if I place my trust in Jesus, I will be raised on the last day when Jesus comes again. And so will you. So you better be nice to me because we're both going to be there. Thirdly, Christian hope makes all the difference in the world now. I mean, it doesn't mean everything will be rosy, although we should pretend everything's rosy. Life can be really tough. It was really tough for the Thessalonians 2,000 years ago. And it is for many people today. I mean, just listening to Andrew praying, we don't need reminding of how many tragedies there are all over the world. And there are personal tragedies playing out every day around us. But there are also signs of deep hope. There are people reaching out to lift each other up, people welcoming refugees. There are food banks and counselling services. There are landmine clearances. There are aid workers. There are fair trade shops. There are friendship cafes. There are campaigns for justice and freedom. And so much more. And when we're involved in justice, either as individuals or together as a church, we are living in the light of Jesus' return. We're helping others and we're pointing to the way the redeemed earth will be. And you know, when we do that, it should remind us, as much as it reminds other people, that life will not always be this way, even at the toughest points. Finally, thinking about death should draw us to worship. The church has long had the idea that the angels in heaven are continually caught up in singing praise to God, and that when we pray, we're joining in with the song of heaven. And as Christians who live in that time between the times, between Jesus coming for the first time and his return, in one sense, our resurrection life has already begun. And that's never truer than when we join in the praise of heaven. One day, the gulf between heaven and earth will be bridged. But for now, I think that's as close as we can get. And that's a really good reason for coming to church, especially now you can sing behind masks. I think that's probably enough about death for one night. <laughs> but I do pray that each of us will leave here tonight knowing that somehow we've joined in the worship of heaven, having been touched by the Spirit 
and inspired to point to God's inbreaking kingdom. Well, like the older message that I now see not as one putting me off my tea, but actually a message of deep hope. Friends, in peace pursue thine onward road, but never forget thy last and long abode. Amen. Thank you for listening to the St Nick's Durham podcast. If you would like to hear more sermons and teaching like this, then subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about St Nick's, visit our website at stnicks.org.uk.